Glass Tire presents number nine with David McGee. Podcast. The name of the show is Number Nine, and I'm your host, David McGee. What you're listening to now is from the composer Julius Eastman. The name of the piece is called Evil Nigger. Who is Julius Eastman? What is Julius Eastman? Is he a minimalist composer, a jazz composer, a gospel singer? Eastman can't be tamed or framed. Is he a conceptual artist? Is he a trickster? Eastman is real. Eastman is gay. Eastman is black and iconoclast. Eastman hates paperwork. Eastman was born in 1940 and died in 1990, alone and almost forgotten. But Eastman has risen and is still rising. My guest on today's podcast is the composer Mary Jane Leach, who knew and performed with Eastman and is now the foremost scholar of his work. In 1998, she embarked upon a mission to recover Eastman's scores and recordings of his music. She is the co-editor of the book Gay Gorilla, Julius Eastman and His Music, and co-producer of a three-CD album of Eastman's music titled Unjust Malaise, which we will be sampling throughout this podcast. And lastly, I've invited my friend the musician Chris Becker to come to the studio to talk a little music, a little painting, and the Eastman effect. When did you first encounter Eastman? And most importantly, when did you first encounter the music? Um, they both happened within a few months of each other in early 1981. Um, he and I were, Julius and I were hired to perform in this theater work and uh, kind of doing like extended vocal techniques kind of stuff. And it was like an early morning rehearsal and he comes bopping in in mm. black leather and chains, drinking scotch. And I'm going like, wow. "Oh my god!" Wow. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, I was, I thought I was, I was feeling pretty hip, you know. And it was just like, what year was this? That was 1981. Oh wow. Yeah, and so um, that was how I, you know, my first memory of meeting him. And then in the beginning of April, um, he had this piece, the the ten cello piece, the uh, Holy Presence of Joan Dark, and I I went to hear it and I was just blown away because I mean first of all it was really great and second of all I have this big interest in pieces for multiples which you know are like big quantity of mm-hmm. instrument the same instrument you know like nine oboes or you know ten cellos or mm-hmm. seventy six trombones or whatever mm-hmm. so it kind of musically I loved it and then it just also fell into a, a genre that I was really, that I really liked. Uh, you know, that's interesting. You, you're talking about the Holy Presence piece. 
his voice, I have to tell you, is quite stunning. Yeah, well, that's not the same thing. The um, the cello piece um, was performed as a standalone, and the prelude it wasn't performed live at all. Um, he had been asked to. There was a radio program, and he'd been asked to provide. They were going to feature his music on this radio program that was um, funded by the Creative Music Studio. Mm -hmm. So he w wanted to do the Tencello piece, which is, you know, the holy presence of Joan Dark. Mm -hmm. And um, so they recorded it at Third Street Music uh, Settlement. And then a few weeks later, uh, he called up the engineer who who's an old boyfriend of mine so and said, well, you know, I have this piece I want to do. So Steve had to lug his nogger and microphones to this tiny little apartment on a noisy street in the East Village. And the, and he basically, he recorded it there. And I think he basically, there was no editing. He did it all in one take. Mm -hmm. There wasn't anything written out. It was just a list of uh, the words that he was going to sing so there was no there was no musical score. It was just a uh, you know a list of words that he kind of riffed on. Saint Michael, Saint, Saint Margaret, Saint, Saint Catherine, Saint. They said. Saint Michael said, Saint Catherine said, Saint Margaret said, She said, Saint Margaret said, Saint Catherine said, Saint Margaret said, Saint Catherine said, Saint Michael said, She said, She said, so it's never performed live, but it is an amazing piece. <laughs> it is a beautiful piece. During this time, as a painter, I was interested in why I haven't heard of Julius Eastman. And I was thinking, during that period, I can imagine like the neo-expressionist movement and all the painters. And did he surround himself with those people, or was there other were there other black composers? Yeah, so it was like um, Talib Hakim and Tanya Leon and Hakim and Tanya and Julius had this um, organized these concerts in basically Brooklyn through the Brooklyn Philharmonia, mm -hmm. and um, they they programmed concerts all over basically Brooklyn, maybe Harlem as well, and so there were those two. But then there was um, Carmen Moore, Hale Smith, Oliver Lake. Dorothy Redmore, Noel DaCosta, and Arthur Cunningham. So there, there was like a kind of community of uh, black composers, but 
most of them were doing sort of more academic type work than right. than than he was, if that you know makes any sense. But at that time in New York, like 1981, I mean, the genres, you know, are not even just the genres of music, but just the various art forms. Everybody hung out with everybody else. I, I realized that because I was I was reminded of, you know, Philip Glass's relationship with uh, Richard Sierra and and Chuck Close. Uh, Chuck Close and all those cats. And I was wondering that Eastman, like, I can imagine Julius meeting, um, you know, you know, just David Hammonds or somebody like that. I, I, my mind can just see them hanging out somewhere and talking, but yeah. you know, that would just be like super fantastic. He did hang out with some jazz people. Like he wrote a piece for Roy Nathanson mm-hmm. and William Parker wrote a piece, I guess about Julius or for Julius. Right. Um, so, I mean, he did hang out with them. Um, not, I think he hung out with sort of the people that you'd sort of consider the kitchen contingent of composers and musicians more than he did um the jazz jazz people right he did hang out with jazz people in buffalo because his brother was a jazz player and he and he did perform with them i want to talk to you about eastman's titles you uh-huh. know, which are very seems to be controversial and to some people even controversial to this day you know the crazy nigger and evil nigger and gay gorilla yeah, I think I think that the if, if you have a recording, then you definitely have the recording of him talking. Yes, at the Northwestern University, and he he says that much better than than I could could say. I would just be rehashing his words. Right. Now, there was a there was a little problem with the titles of the piece. Uh, there were there were some students and uh, one faculty member uh, who felt that the titles were somehow derogatory in some manner, being that the word nigger is in it. Uh, These particular titles, the reason I use them is because, in fact, I use, there's a whole series of these pieces, and they're called, they can be called a nigger series. Now, the reason I use that particular word is because for me, it has a, what is what I call a basicness about it. That is to say, I feel that in, in any case, the, the first niggers uh, were, of course, field niggers. And on, upon that is really the uh, basics, basis of the, what I call the American economic system. Without field niggers, you wouldn't really have such a great and grand economy that we have. So that is what I call the uh, first and great nigger, field niggers. Uh, and what I mean by niggers is that thing which is uh, fundamental, that person or thing that attains to, an, to a basicness, a fundamentalness, uh, and eschews that thing which is superficial or, or, or what can we say, elegant. So that, a nigger for me is that kind of thing uh, which is, attains himself or herself to the ground of anything, you see. And that's what I, that's what I mean by nigger. So there are, there are many niggers, there are many kinds of niggers. There are 
there are, there, there might be, there are, of course, uh, 99 names of Allah, but then there are 52 niggers. And so therefore, I'm wondering, we are playing two of these niggers. Now, the reason I use gay gorilla, G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A, that one, is because uh, uh, these names, let me, let me put a little sub-system here. These names, uh, either I glorify them or they glorify me. And in the case of gorilla, that glorifies gay. That's to say, I don't, there aren't many gay gorillas. I don't feel that, uh, that uh, gaydom has, does have that strength. So therefore, I use that word in the hopes that they will. You see, I feel, I don't, at this point, I don't feel that, uh, that uh, gay gorillas can really uh, match with uh, Afghani gorillas or PLO gorillas. I don't, but let us hope in the future that they might, you see. That's why I use that word gorilla. It means uh, a, a gorilla is someone who is, in any case, sacrificing his life for a point of view. And you know, if there is, if there is a cause, and if it is a great cause, those who who belong to that cause will sacrifice their blood because without blood there is no cause. So therefore, that is the reason that I use gay gorilla in hopes that I might be one if called upon to be one. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there was a, a purpose behind it. You know, in a way, it was just sort of claiming those words for himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, you know, at that time, you know, there was Richard Pryor, and he was going, what, that exactly. nigger's crazy? Exactly. You know, and, I was thinking that very thing. Yeah, and then also, um, you know, Patti Smith's Rock yeah. and Roll Nigger, which yes. Julius heard and he loved. And actually, the rhythm in the cello piece is, is, her, um, is from her Rock and Roll Nigger. It's the exact same rhythm. I want, to I want to talk about Julia's relationship to university settings. And I, I was thinking, is, is Julius Eastman an example of how the university fails that kind of personality? Or what do you think about that? Oh, boy. <laughs> I think maybe it's just not a suitable environment for someone like him. You know, like, 
I mean, teaching music theory is really tedious, mm-hmm. you know. And I, you know, when you're like a really creative person, it's really a drag to to go to class and be teaching um, elementary courses like theory and things like that. Um, and also at that time, when when he was uh, at Buffalo, I mean, the music field you know academic music was very academic at that time mm-hmm. you know um you know it, 12 tone was the big thing and so i mean i know that people on the music faculty uh didn't respect what he was doing cuz everything wasn't through written you know like every note wasn't written down and so they didn't consider that valid but he was in a w- odd position because he was part of the creative associates and part of the deal of being one of those is that you didn't have to teach. And so he still did teach, but then he never showed up for class. So, uh, <laughs> right. and didn't, and didn't arrange for someone to, you know, sub, sub for him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, stuff. it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you, I mean, should everybody who's in music be suitable for for working in a university? Uh, you know, almost goes against sort of the creative. Uh... But I do think that in some regards, I think students may lose out in a more organic approach to how people practice, you know, their art, you know, who are. I know I, I've done the same thing because I've taught theory and I try to get the students to actually hear what's happening so they can understand why people came up with those rules, you know, to show that there was a, you know, reason behind it, but not to get hung up on the rules. But if you can hear, uh, then, you know, then you're ahead of the game. What compels you and what did compel you to spend so much of time and effort, you know, bringing this music to light? Well, at first I, I really just wanted to find the cello piece, the recording of it. And then, when I found the recording, I wanted to find the score. Um, and then in making these inquiries, I realized that it wasn't just that piece that was difficult to find. It was everything else. You know, everything else had basically um, disappeared as well. So I, I kind of backtracked. And, you know, I wasn't really pursuing it all that much. And then I was talking to New World Records, which I have a cd on and we used to chit chat every once in a while and so i was telling them about julius and they go oh we love his music that's one that we've Mm -hmm. been thinking about you know you know putting out a record of or cd of and so i kind of agreed to do it because and thinking that it wasn't going to be all that difficult Mm -hmm. you know because i found the cello piece you know with a few like snafus but i found it pretty easily and i found the master for it Mm-hmm. Um, and the master, because it was a radio program, it, the, the master tape had the cello piece and the prelude, which is the voice piece. Um, the master at the end of the recording, it gave all the credits. So it said, this is the recording engineer. These are the cellists who performed. And so, I mean, that kind of made life a little bit easier, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking, well, that wasn't that difficult. Mm-hmm. And then I you know, then it just seemed like I hit a wall, you know, and this was in before the days of everybody having emails and websites and, 
you know, I mean, I was literally writing letters, you know, and having them returned like six weeks later and, you know, starting another cycle or calling somebody and they would say, oh, I don't know anything or have anything. Why don't you call so-and-so? And then I'd call the next so-and-so and then I'd call the next so-and-so. And then that would say, well, why don't you call, you know, the first person that I started that whole circle of phone calls with? Mm-hmm. Um, now it's a lot easier, you know, because, well, I mean, first I of all, know. none of us use none of us use phones, <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, and, you know, you can locate people pretty easily or find someone who knows that someone. Um, So, I mean, a lot has changed. When I started out, I got um, everything was on cassette. I mean, I went to CalArts because that was where I had wanted to uh, play the cello, Julius's cello piece for class because I was doing a whole class on pieces for multiples. We made a, a digital copy of the cassette and even at cal arts which is like really big on technology mm-hmm. like um it was like a big deal to, to burn a cd right, right and now and now cds are almost obsolete so it's just it's amazing how quick you know how quickly everything changes and how like the means of communication have changed it, it is the, amazing yeah, you know, the means of recording and distributing recordings have changed. And I mean, it's just, it's amazing. What is your feeling about this Eastman revival now? Are you excited about it? Yeah, I am. I am. I mean, and it's also gratifying that that the focus is on his music and not like his life, you know, and, and you know, sort of doing doing like a pity revival, you know? Right. Uh, but you know, this is America, and we it seems that that narrative of the artist, you know, um, downtrodden and, and forgotten, is a popular notion to a lot of people's imagination. So it's really nice yeah. that people can focus on this music and the dynamic and the, and and just just the beautiful um, power and spiritual power of this music. I wanted to ask you about Eastman and gospel and or the church. Was he a religious person? Uh, he was, but in a non-organized kind of way. Right. I mean, I mean, I think he he you know picked and chose you know like he was a Buddhist, he was a you know Hindu, he was a Christian. You know, I mean, right. You name it, he did it. Right. <laughs> I mean, you can just hear it, and when he sings, it just it seems like it just comes from some spiritual place. And I was wondering, you know, uh, did he grow up in the church or any of that? You know. Well, he did. He did start singing as a paid choral singer pretty early in life. Right. You know, in for church, for church. Right. I mean, it was Episcopalian, so it wasn't like your gospel church or anything well, like right. that. It, what is the takeaway from? What is your impressions that you you would want people to think about Eastman's music? Oh boy! <laughs> I know that's a whopper. <laughs> well, th- it's also a whopper because there's like all these different kinds of music. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's like kind of sort of um, structured improv pieces. There are pieces that are totally written out. There's pieces that are just totally improvisational. And those are mostly his own, you know, for him to perform, not for group effort. Um, oh, you know, then there's the multiples pieces then in the pieces for pianos 
then there's the whole kind of almost jazz oriented free Im- you know wasn't wasn't even free improv but jazz piano ish right. and voice stuff going on so I don't know. I mean, he just, I mean, you can almost see sort of an arc of his pieces, you know, like when he was like in college and just out of college, you know, the pieces were basically pieces that he could perform himself. You know, um, something that Eastman said that, or I read this about Eastman that as a painter, I found very interesting is this, this building up of almost memory of images. Like you take one piece of, of a song and, you you re, you take that and you place that and you, it's a continued of of a process of memory where you just build and build and build until eventually these pieces fall. You yeah, know. there's a, the most obvious example of that is is uh, there was a piece called "Stay on It." And I, I can't remember if it on the record it ends that way, but on, on there's a video online where it just ends with the tambourine just like shaking out this rhythm. Oh, that's beautiful. And then Feminine, which was written like about a year later, starts off, he has these mounted sleigh bells. so And they go throughout the entire like 75 minutes. So it's going... And so, like, you could almost do it like a crossfade, you know, that this piece picked up where the other one ended. What What do you think Eastman, what did you think Eastman brought to the pantheon of uh, minimalist music that hadn't been really brought forth until he existed? Well, I, I think, I mean, there's kind of a flexibility to it that, that hadn't been there before. I mean, there's a kind of minimum, there's basically two kinds of minimalism. There's one which is like rhythmic, you know, so you get all these ryth- rhythmic patterns, you know, like Steve Reich and Phil Glass tend to like use rhythms and play around with rhythms. And then there's the um, tone or pitch-based minimalism like Lamont Young mm-hmm. and Phil Niblock. And Julius kind of combines both of them, you know, because he has like, you know, rhythmic riffs and then he has but he then he also plays around with with sound the way that some of the tone based minimalists do mm-hmm. um there's there's actually a very interesting example at the end of crazy nigger which like about the last 30 minutes um a few years ago i was listening to a piece by jim tenney and i went oh my god that's the mm. ending of crazy nigger really <laughs> and, and what yeah it, it's a it's a piece called spectral canon 
for Conlon Nancaro. And Nancaro was a composer who lived in Mexico, who whose music was basically, he made piano rolls because he dealt with like really complex rhythms. So this piece of Jim's right. was very, the score is very precise. And what it was, was that it took like the fundamental note and then the octave and then the octave and the fifth. So he took, he just gradually kept adding all of these pitches in the harmonic series. But yes. then he did kind of a rhythmic thing too. So like, the fundamental was played like at a certain pace. The octave was played twice as fast. The um, octave in the fifth was played three times as fast. So th it's like all this kind of rhythmic proportional thing. And Julius did the same thing, but in a much more kind of intuitive way and mm -hmm. not in an obvious way. Right. You know, and, and the score is messy. And, you know, right. so like it, they were both dealing with the same thing, but in executing it in totally different ways but i would i would also like to add that i have this theory that julius was post-minimal before there was minimal <laughs> really can, can you elaborate on that well i mean like you know pieces like stay on it and i mean he was doing things when when um i i can't remember the exact names of the pieces of the by steve reich and um phil glass but they were kind of doing things that um that Julius was going beyond I mean he was he really was doing pieces that were like post minimal before minimal was even really established I mean there was like really? Terry Riley you know and NC you know from like 1964 yes. and those kind of pieces that were kind of like cell likes I don't you know like where you just had like a measure and you could repeat them a certain number of times or whatever but you know, the pieces were sort of constructed of cells and music. And Frederick Mzhevsky is also the same way. And Julius knew all of those types of music. Um, but there was a, early, a lot of early minimum was, was very rigid. Mm -hmm. And it was very instructional, instructional for me to hear a concert in The Hague where they did uh, Steve Reich's piece for six pianos. And then they did Crazy Nigger. And the... <laughs> I mean, you probably don't want to put this on air, but the race uh, yes, piece was so anal. You know, and and there's something kind of, I mean, there is something so kind of organic, you know, about Julius's music. And, and there's a certain point and we all go like, I almost burst into tears at that point, you know.
Julius scores. I'm told that my friend Chris Baker told me that uh, there's a lot of interpretive nature in these scores that he um, didn't write down a lot of things. So people who knew him is so how did this work? How do people just remember, you know, how the music went or. Yeah. Well, that he, I mean, he wasn't unusual in that respect. I mean, I, I was in a group for years called the downtown ensemble. And sometimes we would spend like 80% of the rehearsal time discussing the piece and how it should be done and, you know, working out all the details. And so, I mean, that was in a time where, I mean, you could live in New York and not have to, you know, have a trust fund, you know, mm. so that you could have rehearsals to work out the details. Like, you know, all of the early Phil Glass, Steve Reich groups, I mean, that they were just people who just got together and worked on things. They weren't getting, like, union wages or anything like that. Right. So, so I mean, it did rely on ha having musicians to work with. And the only piece that I know of that, well, actually, there's another one. There's um, but the piece that, uh, the ten cello piece, is totally through written because he had to hire ten cellists, and you're not in order to do it. You he couldn't have like, um, you know, tons of rehearsals and have vague instructions that had to be totally written out. Mm -hmm. And the only other one is that if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And because that was done by the Brooklyn Philharmonia, and I can't imagine that. They had like tons of rehearsal time where you could just like work out things and, you know, you had to have everything on the page. What was his relationship to John Cage? Well, he they got along great for years, and then um, you know there was that whole the whole songbooks episode, and uh, where where the, uh, J John had seen previous performances of of the SEM ensemble and Julius especially performing, and he liked what they did. But one of the um, prerequisites of the piece was that. You couldn't do what you had done before. You were not supposed to rehearse. And, you know, you're just supposed to do something spontaneously. So his part of the piece was to do, to give a lecture. So he gave a lecture on sex and undressed a guy on stage. Mm, and and that. Cage, who was basically closeted, mm -hmm. um, just blew up, you know, and... Uh, I think Julius was surprised. I mean, he was like a tweaker, you know. Was, you know, he he'd always like be a nudge nudger, you know. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he expected Cage to like explode, and he did, you know. Um, but which is unfortunate. Wow. But 
I countered that with, you know, Cage was friends with Henry Cowell and Cowell was put in prison for being gay. So, you know, that whole older generation had had some scars to deal with. That's interesting. Um, a closing note, do you consider Julius uh, Eastman a revolutionary? Whew. No, not really. Um, I, I just, I think he's someone who just started off doing works that were all that dissimilar from other people. And then as time passed, he, he claimed the material for himself and just, you know, really, um, established his identity. Um, I don't know if he's revolutionary, but he was really good, you know, um, you know, I don't think he broke any. I don't think he broke any forms or anything like that. I mean, the titles are revolutionary, but mm-hmm. um, musically, I mean, he was, you know, uh, undeniably amazing. <laughs> Let's make that a beautiful end note, Mary Jane. It, what okay. a what a privilege and honor to meet you. Well, thank you. This has been fun. There are a lot of musicians who who don't who still don't yeah. know who he is. There a lot more do now, right? You know, thanks to Mary Jane Leach and thanks to the the. But but it, it still isn't uncommon to talk to a composer in a university setting at the college level or whatever, and, and they may have no idea who he is. And, and I've encountered that. So I was kind of beating myself up based on that whole continuum of the continued of, you know, here's yet another probably fly caught in the buttermilk of, of, you know, and this is not even about race at this point. This is just about so many great musicians, writers. Yeah, but the fact that that he was a black man, I I imagine that resonated with you as well. Well, because... Is that part of what what you're talking about? Like, why didn't I know who this man was, not only as a composer, but as another black artist? Well, I tell you, that's a little bit more complicated to answer because what I was struck by was the labeling system of classical composer, mm-hmm. minimalist composer. Those two words uh, next to his name, I think, well, why, why haven't I heard about this guy? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, after I thought about that for a long time, and I said, well, you know, um, you know, things happen when they're supposed to happen. You meet people at a time in your life that you're ready to meet people. But I have to tell you, nothing prepared me for this music. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Nothing prepared me for that music, you know, because I was still just dealing with the biography of him, you know, but I had not listened to the music. Did you have an expectation when you put it on thinking it'll probably sound like this? Or... Yeah, man. Well, because, you know, I, 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 you know, when you think about minimalist painting, yeah. you think about minimalist music and the people who practice those in the plastic arts and people who did it, the musicians who practice that style of music, you come to terms with, well, you know, you're going to have a kind of 
uh, uh, you're going to hear a particular sound, you know, and um, each sound is different from each composer or painter, but it's going to be a different thing. And with Eastman, you you have pieces of wreckage from, you know, the uh, the minimal, you know, diaspora. But then you hear these warring parties right. within him mm-hmm. that is just like, for example, minimalism was a reaction probably to pop art. Pop art was a reaction to abstract expressionism. Um, and neo-expressionism was a reaction to minimalism, you know, um, in, the, in the painting world. And pretty much, you probably, I don't know if you, as a musician, is this the same thing in the, you know, the Absolutely, music, yeah. music world? Yeah, I mean, minimalism, if it had a, um, it was very much a reaction to uh, a type of composing um, that you mainly uh, heard in university settings. You certainly didn't hear it in galleries or clubs or um, in other venues outside mm-hmm. of um, academia. And it's a type of composition, and I'm generalizing here, but it's very much based on theory. Um, is very complicated mm-hmm. to realize. Um, doesn't sound fun, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and is really, really difficult to play. Mm-hmm. And and again, I hate to stereotype and, and talk about somebody. I'm thinking people like Milton Babbitt, um, some things by Stockhausen. And this is music I go back to mm-hmm. and I do listen mm-hmm. to with open ears now. But you can, if that's all there was, then you kind of understand where Phil Glass was coming from or where Steve Wright came from or Julius Eastman says, mm-hmm. there's, there's all this other music out there. There's music from India. There's music from West Africa. There's music from the clubs that I go to. Right. There's, you know, why can't, is this not uh, material we can use as well? Right. But with Eastman, I, I think you definitely touched on it. You talked about the warring factions in his music and and that's something i'm hearing now when i'm listening to pieces especially um crazy nigger it's almost like this unholy marriage of the cool veneer of say minimalist that aesthetic but uptown it's this this naughtiness this this headiness it's all there they're colliding together in that music to the soul system of what it is to be a human being. When you hear Eastman, what, 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 do you th- what comes to mind to you? Well, I'm really glad we're, I dug into... I was, you're right, I was aware of Eastman when you called me because as a composer, 
and somebody's been doing that for a long time this the the work the history especially american music is always on my radar um so of course he's a part of you know my mm-hmm. knowledge mm-hmm. um but had i really listened to his music i hadn't i knew mm-hmm. his story kind of superficially and i knew mary jane leach from new york we had met briefly um, but I was aware of her music through the American Music Center and just her presence in the scene. So she's a composer I'm aware of. I say all that because what I'm saying is I'm really glad I'm digging into Julius's music now, knowing you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. not on my own, because mm-hmm. it's a completely different thing mm-hmm. um, for the very reasons you mentioned. You know, and I say with you, you're a visual artist. Mm-hmm. You're black. I'm mm-hmm. white. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> you know there, there's, <laughs> and we are both, you know, talking about this this composer that is going to resonate with you and your history and mm-hmm. your and your you know spiritual material and makeup mm-hmm. in a way that's different than it's going to resonate with me. Mm-hmm. You know, How so? because of my my history, mm-hmm. color of my skin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I do think that comes into play. I don't think I don't think it's a, a case, and I think this is what Julius was going for. He mm-hmm. wanted people to like you know, both black and white and whatever to Mm -hmm. feel, not feel comfortable. So I can sit here and dive into this music, not just on my own and not just from a a critical standpoint or um, a research oriented. It's a much more of an emotional thing. Mm. Let Um, me ask you this though. Yeah, go ahead. I'm not sure I answered that question. (laughs) But do you, do you feel, uh, but I don't think that me being an African-American or you being a white guy, uh, can abstract us from the qualities of feeling that this music, you know, pours on to the soul. You know, I think you can be any race at all and listen to this music and be affected by this music. This music is overwhelmingly beautiful. Uh, it also is overwhelmingly recognizable to mm. 
um, a history that some histories that I didn't experience, but um, maybe I dreamt about. But that's the power of music. Period. Mm-hmm. You know, th- th- music is a powerful art form in that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. It, it can it, it affects memory. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and his music is very cinematic in in its intensity too. You know, so just. Is your memories, your memories different than mine, right? If if I understand what you say when you say it, it yeah, we all memory. have different memories. Yeah, you know, yeah. music can you know. We're you, talking about before we were born memories. Yeah, right? yeah, yes, okay. before we were born memories. Yeah. And you know, we talk about memories. My memories are different than yours. Yours are different from mine. You know, as um, somebody who didn't come to the U.S. via the Middle Passage. Mm-hmm. You know, am I going to be moved? You know, by by Eastman's music. I mean, these these aren't prerequisites for listening. I don't. No, wanna, I don't want to put it up like that. Um, but I think it's. I think it's. Why not talk about it? You know, why not unpack this a little bit? You know, and and, and well, that's that. I mean, because people don't. We tend to kind of dance around this very conversation you and I are, are comfortable having here. You know, exactly. I mean, <laughs> listen, so, and, and, and he knew that. <laughs> Eastman is a Julius Eastman is a classical trickster. Yeah, but yeah. you know he's a classical trickster, and like Chuck D said, "A brother ain't your brother because he's your color." Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think um, it's a lot of people who, no matter what race, what tribe, what gender, may not dig this music. But I tell you, if you are interested in what it is to be human, mm. if you're interested in the agonies of what it is to survive this this plane of your life, where the physical is at war with the spiritual um, you will find Eastman may be a necessary evil to you but you will find him you will find Julius good medicine Recorded by Chris Becker and edited by Becker with David McGee. Original music by Chris Becker. This has been a production of Glass Tire, the oldest online-only art magazine in the country. For plenty more heated opinion about art in Texas, plus news and events, visit our website at glasstire.com. This episode of Number 9 was made possible in part through the support of the Mid-America Arts Alliance Engage Program and the City of Houston through Houston Arts Alliance. Go see some art.